time this morning is July 4th, and uh, Sunday morning, our message this morning is going to be God's Exchange Program. And I wanted to tell you a little bit first. I heard a preacher this morning, and somebody that I don't listen to very often. I, I've never been from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, most of my life. There was a national ministry there that rose to a pinnacle of success, and everybody in the world knew who they were, could speak their name, and were all very excited. And then because of some horrific sin, that's all they became known for. Since then, I've just had it in my heart to shy away from the mega ministries. There's nothing wrong with them. God honors them. I'm excited for them. I love Lakewood that's in this town. Uh, they're going to be meeting in a compact center. They're so big. I think it's great. I just don't follow them very closely. My heart is in these kind of groups where you know everybody. Everybody knows you. There's no pretenses. But I was watching this mega ministry on TV this morning, and I was so proud of the preacher. I mean, and that sounds funny. You know, I'm a little guy and nobody, and I'm proud of him, but I can't help it. Have you ever seen somebody and you were proud of what they were doing because you knew it took courage? He was talking about July 4th, about declaring independence and how it came at a great price and how freedom has been very expensive throughout history. talked about D-Day and the losses at D-Day. Then he looked at the church and he said the church was founded with no less of a costly price. And I expected him to go right to the cross and talk about Jesus. He didn't. He began to speak about the Christians throughout the centuries that were burned at the stake, that were killed in arenas for people's enjoyment. And all. Then he looked at his church, and I'm talking about there are thousands there. It's like a small city in this guy's church. And he said, we're meeting in a grand cathedral this morning. He said, if it might cost you your life to follow Jesus, I wonder if we would need a pup tent to meet in. And, you know, there's kind of a calm over the crowd. He said, the harsh reality is we have a Sunday morning service here with everybody. And tonight, 80% of you will find something more important to do. He said, only 25% of you sacrifice and give to this fellowship. 90% of you have never led anybody to the Lord in your whole life but are complaining because there's not revival. He encouraged his church to go home and look in the mirror to find the problem. I thought, my God, that was bold. That was exciting. I wonder if we'll have anybody there next Sunday. <laughs> You know, but I have learned that there are a group of people that want the truth. They, they want, I heard somebody say one time, a good preacher will step on your toes every now and then. We need to be very careful as we fellowship in this little group and wherever else we go that we don't exclude everybody who does anything differently than we do. Inside, we're always scared about the unknown. We're fearful of, but what if they... What if they put me on the spot? What if they don't believe what I believe? All of those things. The Bible says it's good for brothers to walk in unity. Anybody who's ever been married, and most of you in here are, know just how reasonable it is for you to be able to disagree with somebody but walk in love. If you've been married 15 minutes, you know how to do that. The body of Christ should be able to do that too. So some speak in tongues and some don't. Some lift their hands, some don't. Some get on their knees, some don't. Some like recited readings and some don't. Let's find out those that really love the Lord and find a way to dwell in unity. Paul even said it's good that there be disputes among you. God will show where his favor rests. We're so busy all the time looking for reasons to divide us that we can't stand at all. You know, the devil doesn't have to attack the church. The church does a good job of eating his own. 
You know, we, we really do. That's in Louisiana, they would say lame. Yeah, that's all just a little something extra. This morning, our message is about God's exchange program. Since it's the 4th of July, I thought it was fitting to read you a couple lines from the Declaration of Independence. I thought it would be a good place to start. It says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impelled them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson was chosen to write that. He was among the founding fathers, considered to be the strongest and most eloquent writer. He delivered his rough draft to the Continental Congress, and they made 86 changes to it. That's something not very many people know. We, we said, wow, he sat down, he just pinned this out. The reason I bring that up is great thought went into those opening lines. And they chose to acknowledge a creator, the laws of nature that the God of nature had instituted, and said that chief among all of these, everybody had the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Where did they get this idea? Turn with me to Isaiah 61 this morning. Isaiah 61 is easily found by taking the middle of your Bible and then hanging a left. Anybody on the Thompson chain, it is page 828. Since the title of our message this morning is God's Exchange Program, I wanted to tell you how Webster, Webster is kind of the standard for dictionaries in our country, defines the, the verb exchange. It says to part with, give, or transfer in consideration of something received as equivalent. If we're going to exchange something, you and I, I have to part with something, I have to give it, or I have to transfer it to you, and in return I will receive something deemed to be equivalent. The second definition is much the same. It says to give and receive reciprocally. I can't give you something and it be a fair exchange if you don't give me something in return. It requires both parties to give up something, and they must be deemed equivalent. God has an exchange program, and it came at a very, very great price. If Mandy, who loves to bargain shop, goes and finds a sweater, and then later decides she wants to exchange it, most stores will do that, right? But will they exchange her $40 sweater for a $100 sweater? No, you'd have to pay a difference, wouldn't you? Because that wouldn't be exchanging things that are equivalent. Let's learn this morning about God's exchange program. In Isaiah 61, it says, this is verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn 
and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. God has an exchange program, and the reason that He does is He wants to display in His people His splendor. You and I will become walking billboards of the splendor of God when people realize that we exchanged something with God and came out better for it. Our God has anointed one man to proclaim his exchange program. The beginning of Isaiah says, The Lord has anointed me to proclaim or to preach good news to the captives. Luke 4.21, Jesus is in his hometown. There are people surrounding him that don't quite know who he is. They don't realize he's the guy that is there to proclaim God's exchange program. And he says, by the way, as I read Isaiah, it's me who is the fulfillment of this scripture. It's fulfilled in your hearing today. They got so mad they wanted to throw rocks at him. Why? It wasn't bad news. It was good news. Isaiah outlines the rules, the parameters for the exchange program. Think about this. Think about this as if you just read an ad in the paper that said something like this. And would you be mad about this or happy? Bring me the poor. Bring me the brokenhearted. The captives. The prisoners. Those who mourn. Those whose lives feel like ashes. Those that are covered in despair. And I will exchange for the poor a heart that is healed. I will exchange for the captives something that brings freedom. I'll exchange for the prisoners a life that is abundant. For those who mourn, I will put in them a spirit that causes gladness. For those with ashes, I will give something beautiful. And for those that are in despair, I will give you garments of praise. This is nothing but good news. That's what Jesus showed up to proclaim. Salvation is simply when we come and exchange our lives that are like ashes when compared with His for a better life. But it doesn't work for everybody. And there's a reason. In Matthew 9, and I'll wait while y'all get there, remember that in the definition of an exchange, you have to both give up something and they need to be deemed equivalent. Matthew 9, we see the kind of people Jesus calls. The kind of people that can participate in this exchange program. And then we find out why so many are excluded. This morning, David and I were driving around the neighborhood and we were praying. (coughs) Not about anything in particular. We just wanted to pray. Find out when you've exchanged your life for his and he puts this spirit of happiness in you. You want to talk to him about it all the time. You can't help it. I remember in my life when prayer was work, something I had to schedule and watch a clock about. And somewhere in my life, there became a transition where prayer was something I didn't have to think about. If I caught myself not occupying my thoughts on a TV or something else, they began to naturally just flow towards God. Well, this morning was one of those times. And I looked up at a stop sign, and there was a woman in a BMW. I like BMWs. I think they're fine automobiles. There's nothing wrong with them. She had on some real chic sunglasses. I own sunglasses. I think they're kind of cool. They even make me feel good sometimes when I wear them. She had jewelry, had her hair fixed a certain way, and there was a guy. 
And the way she glanced over conveyed something to me. She was in a red convertible BMW. There's nothing wrong with that. I wish you all had one. I'd like to ride in them. There was something about her life that she was trying to project. And it was, I've got it together. I'm all right. Look at me. Look, I'm cool. I mean, you could see it in a glance from the looking over the rim of the sunglasses to the car to the way she was dressed. You say, oh, golly, Eric, how can you be so judgmental? When you see with the eyes of the Spirit, the Spirit will show you things. It was a facade. I don't anymore believe that that woman is is all together on the inside as she appeared to be on the outside. This could be. But getting her to realize that. There's a man named David Ring that uh, I understand many of us came up in the Baptist tradition. David Ring is a Baptist preacher with cerebral palsy. And I remember the first time I heard him preach, I couldn't, you know, I I thought it was a joke at first. I didn't know. I thought somebody was making fun of people with a handicap. And he does that on purpose. He kind of plays on your emotions. He picked on us pretty good. But he preaches a message called, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. You're like, what on earth is that? And he shows up, and he's in a three-piece suit. And as he's preaching, as he's talking to you about the wages of sin, and as he's, he's talking to you about man's inner being, he begins to take off his coat because it was hot, he said. And when he took off his coat, you could see that past the vest, way down on the sleeve of the arm, there was a hole. He don't say anything about it, but he keeps preaching. Then a few more minutes into it, it's still hot in here, and he takes off the vest. And you see that there's a stain on the shirt. Then a few minutes later, he kicks off a shoe, and his toes are hanging out. And the whole point of his message is, we all look okay on the outside. But when you take a sober examination of your life, you'll find that there are holes, there are stains, there are things that are missing. Jesus came so that we could exchange those kind of rotten things for something that's beautiful. But the problem that we have most of the time is found in Matthew 9, verse 9. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, on page 1078, for those of you that have the same Bible. It says, I'm sorry for drinking this, y'all. I lost my voice earlier in the week, been fighting to get it back. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came proclaiming God's exchange program. If you're poor, brokenhearted, if you're a captive or a prisoner, if you mourn, if your life is ashes or you're in despair, I will give you something better. He came for the sick so that He could be a doctor and heal them. But the problem is the people that he first presented himself to didn't see themselves as sick, didn't see themselves in need of anything. And friends, most of us are no different. We've heard enough Christianity out there spoken to the masses. God wants you rich. He wants you blessed. He wants you happy. Life should be a bed of roses. That it has pacified our conscience. It's made us think that we are well. So that everybody that you meet on the street claims to be a Christian and their lives proclaim the opposite. As Paul wrote in the letter 
to Titus. They claim to know God, but their very actions deny Him. I was once this way. I was raised in a church. I won Bible awards in my school. I could quote more scripture at the age 18 than most people can in their life. And I was not born again. Although I could tell you how to be. I could, I'd been baptized as a Lutheran. I'd been baptized as a Baptist. I had attended Methodist church for a long time, confirmed as a Lutheran. Won Bible awards in a Baptist school. All of those things. I don't know how many times I was actually baptized. You know, because it never did clear my conscience. Because I knew inwardly, because the word was planted there. You cannot profess it with your mouth and not live it with your life. Now, I amassed around me all kinds of doctrines that made it okay. You know, It's okay that I live like hell all the way to heaven. Everybody does it. We have to live in this flesh. That's, nobody's perfect. I forgot all of the scriptures that said if you walk in darkness, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. I forgot that every tree bears one kind of fruit or another. And that the only way, Matthew 7:21 says, you enter into the Father's presence is to do His will. I willfully forgot those things. And I gathered around myself people that had agreed to forget those things too. Because we thought that we were healthy. We thought that we were well and had no need of a doctor. Jesus' exchange program only works for those that want, desperately want, the exchange. Now, this is salvation some of you sit here and say, I'm already saved. Why would you tell me this? You know, why, why are we even going through this? Because as you're saved, as you are being saved, and it's a lifelong process, what I find is the great joy that came in the beginning as you first received this, this exchange, as you first traded in your old life for a new one, you were excited and you moved on in the power of God. But as time went on, you learned to cling to things from the old life as if it had never been exchanged. You learn to keep your despair. You learn to stay frustrated. You learn how to harbor guilt and frustration and anger. When the truth is, is it's a lifelong exchange program. This is where the Scriptures come in that say things like, cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you. What He's saying is, exchange your care and He'll give you His peace. But if you don't bring Him something, He will not give you anything. You have to give the trash that's in you to Him and He'll give you something beautiful. 2 Corinthians 5 said, He who had no sin was made to be sin for you. Oh, we exchanged something. We exchanged our sin for His righteousness. Were they equivalent? Not at all. That's why it's called grace. For it to be a fair exchange, for it to meet the definition, we had to give Him something of equal value. And you know what He took? He took all the crap that you didn't want and He gave you beautiful things for it. This is why we can't look at somebody else who owes a great debt to God and think that they're bad and we're so very good. This is why we cannot divide and act as if we know it all and nobody else knows anything. The only thing you have was given to you in an unfair exchange. And if you don't have it yet, you can get it. All you have to do is be willing to consider yourself as one who's sick and needy. Turn with me to Matthew 11. Jesus is looking for those who have something to exchange. Those who desire His help. Those that are looking for it. Matthew 11, just a couple pages over. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, 
I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. This exchange program has been hidden from those of great intellect, those with PhDs that have neglected G.O.D., those that went to the university but never visited the burning bush. He has hidden them from the wise of this world. And He has revealed them to the lowly people. He's revealed them to those that simply say, Lord, I know I need Your help. And He's hidden them from those that have rationalized in their mind why they're good people, why there's a moral equivalence between their actions and someone else's. Why it's okay that they're the way they are. Do you know how much time we spend in our lives trying to justify why our actions are okay? Well, I know I told him to shut up, but did you hear what he said to me? You know, We spend all of our time trying to prove why we're right. All of our time trying to get someone else to understand us before we've tried to understand them at all. We spend all of our time trying to remain the God of our own lives. Measuring ourselves by ourselves. Measuring ourselves against anybody we deem lesser. When God's exchange program is revealed to those that are lowly enough to say, I know I'm blowing it. Lord, I'm basically... Y'all don't hear these words in church, and I'm sorry. Lord, I'm basically a screw-up, and I need Your help. The Lord will honor that prayer and come through for you in such a powerful way as compared to, Lord, I know that You are the sacrifice for my sins. I... Receive by substitute the propitiation of what you have done. And you don't have any idea what it means, but somebody in Sunday school taught you to say it. Somebody said, repeat after me, and you just repeated it. You ran down an aisle, got wet, got donuts, and a gift certificate. God is looking for those with broken hearts. He's looking for those that know that their life is ashes, and they'll come and say, hey, I need your help. You're a big God, and I'm a little guy, and I'm not doing very well. Help me. You'll find He's close. This evidence is borne out in the Scripture, and we'll get to some of that, but I want to finish this passage. Yes, Father, for this was Your good pleasure. All things have been committed to Me by My Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Scripture declares boldly that the Lord wants all men to be saved, and that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the dirty secret, if there ever was one, is that you cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. John 6.44 says that. And that the Son only chooses to reveal the Father to some. Well, don't you think we ought to find out who those people are? Who is it that the Son chooses to reveal them? And is it just a frozen chosen scenario? Was John Calvin right? Should we not worry about it? Should I not care about the people on this side of the room because they may not be destined? Is that what the Bible says? Or does it say, Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Who is it that the Lord chooses to reveal the Father to? The lowly, the humble, those that are burdened and in need of rest. And what does this cause the world to do? Oh, yeah, well... David needed to become a Christian. It's like a crutch. I mean, did you see how bad his life was? That's right. I acknowledge it. It was bad and I needed him and he's a huge crutch for me. What is it that you lean on, sir? The Bible says that the strength of a man's arm is a vain hope for salvation. That chariots and horses will not save you in the day of battle. That the dice are cast 
but they fall into the lap of the Lord. When a man comes to the place where he realizes his arm has not worked salvation for him, his facade around him is just that, a facade. I spent most of my early life working out with weights, trying to dominate on an athletic field so that I would have a sense of self-worth. I tried to build a facade that said, I'm mean, I'm tough, I'm all of these things, I can't be hurt. And the Lord chipped away at it little bit by little bit to show me how small I was and how big He was. How much I needed Him and how badly I was failing. Is that because He wants me to think badly of myself? No, He wanted me to recognize I was sick and in need of a doctor. But He doesn't leave you sick. He doesn't leave you broken. As one church we were one time associated with was called the, the uh, Church of the Wounded. No. We're never the church of the wounded. A church is a hospital. Hospitals are in the business of getting people better, not staying hurt. You should not remain the way that you were when you came to Christ. If you've been saved a week, you ought to be further at the end of the week than you were at the beginning. I remember the most frustrating thing for me in the world was as a new Christian, as I began to read the Word, I began to recognize that most Christians did not read the Word. As I began to devour on a daily basis and look at God's Word as my daily food, I found out that it was their Sunday treat. Like you might throw the dog a bone for getting the paper. And because of that, they didn't know what it said. And whenever I would encourage them, hey, I'm curious, this says this, shouldn't we be doing it? They would say, I've been saved 20 years. And as if there was a tenure in God's program. As if once you had been saved a certain amount of time, or declared a member of a church, that was okay. All stop here. You've climbed the hill and must go no further. Friends, it's not that way. The Bible declares that God is perfect and we must be perfect. It's a never-ending process. You should continually be striving to get closer. And I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how long you've been sitting on your salvation in a pew. You must be further tomorrow than you are today. That's required of you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you train animals, you take the older oxen, oxen wear yokes, and you put a yoke on the older oxen so that the younger one can come up and share the yoke. The older oxen knows how to walk in pace. He knows how to obey the commands of the master. The younger doesn't. He struggles and he strains and he kicks and he has to be poked and prodded because he hasn't been taught how to submit. And his life is harder because of it. But when you yoke him to the older oxen, the bigger oxen, the one that is steady, all he has to do is walk within that yoke. And he finds out how to walk a life of peace and ease. Not that there's no troubles, but that the older oxen has learned how to go right through them. Do you know why you use an oxen and not a donkey? When the donkey faces something that is hard, he resists and he pulls. And unless you can overpower him, you can't make him do it. Man is described as a donkey in the Bible. The spirit of man is described as a donkey. You know why you don't use a horse? If a horse gets in deep mud or something that's hard, he wears himself out. You've seen them on those Animal Planet rescue things. They struggle and they strain and they try to run through it until they just wear themselves out and they lay over and die. But you know what an oxen will do? He'll get down on his knees. 
He has to. He just catches a lower gear like a big semi and he works right on through it. That's the Christian's life. It's not that we don't have troubles. It's not that they're not all around us. It's that when you're yoked to the older oxen, you just catch a lower gear. He takes you through it no matter what it takes. And in Him, everything is easy. Everything is light. As long as you're in Him. So Christians, if your life has become frustrated and hard and difficult, take a look inside. Are you yoked to Him? Are you off trying to fight your own battles? Have you gotten involved in things that He doesn't want you involved in? I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about things that have kept you busy and away from Him. He only exchanges with those that will give Him something. That's why you cast your cares upon Him. Proverbs 16.25. You can turn there if you want. If not, I'll quote it for you. It says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, and in the end it leads to destruction or death, depending on your translation. Now, that's quoted twice in Proverbs. Proverbs are the sayings of a great teacher. If a teacher wrote something on a chalkboard when you were in college, when you were in high school, when you were in graduate school, if something was said more than once in a presentation, what does that mean? Universally, every student knows it's on the test. Write it down. Proverbs says this in two places. It says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it results in death. Or destruction. That's because it's on the test. Since the garden, God said to a man, I want you to depend on me for the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from anything here. You can have a blast. Here is a helper to help you work the soil, to do all these things. Only don't reach out and take for yourself the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do it, it will produce death. When man decided that he would know what is right and wrong, he would rely on himself to make decisions about what is right and wrong, God knew that it would result in death. I can look back at the 4,000 years of human history before Jesus and go, wow, there was a way that seemed right to man. And in the end, it just led to death. I can look at my own life and see, you know, before you were saved, even while you're saved, you have to fight the fact that God's Word says one thing, but you have your own moral code that says another. You talk to young single men. One of the things that especially is prevalent now that they all seem to rationalize out. And we were once young single men. Not everybody in here, obviously. Is, well, it's not so much that sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's that not being monogamous is wrong. That's something that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You think, well, the Bible says turn the other cheek, but... You only have two cheeks to turn. I mean, God wants me to defend myself. It seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And you form around you a whole myriad of these kind of rules so that you have your own version of Christianity. It leads to death. Well, in America, it's no different. We've heard about the weak, emaciated Jesus that is not involved in your life that doesn't require you to be Lord for Him to be your Savior. And we think that we join Christianity like a social club. We agree to meet at a certain time. We pay dues occasionally. We share some common ideals and maybe political beliefs. That's not Christianity. Going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Or going to a football game makes you a professional athlete. We know these things, but we must live them about this exchange program. When you realize 
that the ways that have seemed right to you are like ashes and you need something beautiful, realize this as well. That scripture in Isaiah was written to a specific group of people. It said all those who mourn in Zion will be grieved. Zion is Jerusalem in Israel. Why would that be said to them? Because for 4,000 years before Jesus came, they were waiting in line at Macy's for the exchange. Macy's, is that a store here? Is that a Louisiana thing? They were waiting in line at Kohl's for 4,000 years. But because they had kind of fallen asleep right when it was time for the store to open and the exchanges to take place, the owner of the store allowed some people like you, like me, to cut in line, to get in there with the very beginning of the people that had waited for 4,000 years, and we've participated in this great exchange. It was for them. They're the rightful owners of it. They were in line all of that time. But we cut, and God allowed it because He was graceful to a people who weren't looking for Him. You never earned what you have. You didn't work for what you have. You didn't spend all the time waiting in line for it. You didn't camp out the night before so you could get a good exchange. And God has lavished His grace upon you. He promises that in the end, every one of those Jews that were waiting in line will also receive their exchange. In Mark 8, we'll learn a couple more things. i got about 15, 20 minutes. If y'all can hang in there with me and learn fast, I'll preach fast. Mark is the second book of the New Testament. Mark 8.27 begins on page 1119 for those listening by CD. Everybody knows this. My Roman brothers and sisters out there have an entirely different view of what I'm fixing to teach than I do. And that's okay. Hopefully we'll just see the exchange in this. Jesus and his disciples, this is verse 27 of Mark 8, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? There comes a point in every person's life when God turns the mag light. You know in the cop shows on TV, when they're interrogating, they bring in the big light? Or when a surgeon is performing an operation, the lights overhead suddenly beam down on one spot? Most of the time, people spend their time in the shadows, kind of playing in the light, not full darkness, not full light, just hanging out there where they get to enjoy some of the benefits of the light, but nobody really sees them. There comes a time when you stop talking about Jesus and what others say about him, and God shines his light on you and says, but who do you say that I am? The sooner we get there, the less you have to be broken. But if you love the Lord, if you have a desire for Him in your heart, you will absolutely have your will broken because you cannot enter His kingdom with you as the Lord of your life. He has got to be. And Lord of your life does not mean that you acknowledge He's Lord. The demons do that. It does not mean that you read the Word. It doesn't mean that you pray. It means that your actions, your every action, are governed by Him. Not to the point of perfection, but that's what you're striving for every day. Only you can answer that question honestly. But be honest with yourself. 
People say, the Lord knows what's in my heart. Yeah, He does. Do you? He knows what's in your heart by your actions. That's what Matthew 7 says. You need to find out what is in your heart by your actions. If you say that you love the Lord, but when you look at your life, it doesn't show that, who would be in a relationship like that? My husband loves me. He beats me to the point of tears on a regular basis, but I know he loves me. He doesn't tell me he loves me, but I, I know he does. Or maybe he says it, but you know, at what point do you realize the love that they profess is a lie? Love is an action, and it's no different with God. If you love him, you will act a certain way. First John says, if you love him, you will walk as he walked. There, there's no Charles Stanley's not come up with a commentary to make that mean something other than what it says. There, there is no abbreviation or footnote that says, except for you American Christians, you know, except for that special group. If you love him, you have to walk as he walked. Jesus asked Peter, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. That means the anointed one. Anointed one for what? The Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news. You are the one that God has anointed to bring us the way of life. That was Peter's answer and it was awesome. Jesus built his church on that very fact. But then listen. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Who did Peter say Jesus was? You're the anointed one. The one that's come to proclaim to me how to live. You're the Messiah. The one that I'm supposed to receive as Lord. But what does Peter do the first time that Jesus has a different idea about how things should go than him? Your obedience is never tested until God requires you to do something you don't want to do. Most of us are perfectly loving to our spouse as long as they act the way we want them to. We have unconditional love with a few conditions. I love Jennifer as long as the house is clean. I, I love my kids as long as they behave a certain way. As long as we can control our circumstances, we love everybody. But the moment we have to yield control, in other words, not be God, then all of a sudden we're on unshaky ground. Peter is here. He says, I love you, Lord. I'll follow you. The Lord says, okay, well, I'm going to be beaten and killed. I'm going to rise from the dead. And I know you guys don't understand that, and it's going to be hard. Peter says, oh, no, no, nobody. You're not doing it. Don't we have the roles reversed here? He said, well, that was Peter. Golly, he was, he was a numbskull, right? How many times have you done it in your life? The Lord says, don't. And you said, well, I could. And, you know, After all, there is grace, and there's the Lord's permissive will, and you find a way to justify what you want. And he's not Lord. Listen to what Jesus says to him. Y'all, this is Peter. I mean, this is one of the top two guys in first century Christianity. Peter. And listen to what Jesus says to him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, boy, that's even worse. He didn't pull Peter aside to say this. He said it in front of all of his peers. If I did this to one of you, now granted, I'm not Jesus. But you're not Peter. And if I did this to one of you in front of everybody, you'd leave, never come back. You know? You'd run off, cry, take your ball, and go home. Go tell everybody what a bad guy I am and how this is a cult. 
You know, that's what everybody does about the church down the street. It's a cult. I've learned to redefine that. A cult is any church that's more excited about Jesus than your church. <laughs> and a fanatic is anybody that loves Jesus more than you. I've been all of those things, and it's okay. I just happened to get saved in the year David Koresh was on TV. <laughs> you know, I didn't choose it. I didn't know who the guy was or what was going on. You know, I'm not related to him in any way. I even cut my hair after that. Now it's falling out, so it'll never be a temptation again. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. That said with an exclamation point. Hey, he didn't say, hey, Peter, come here. That would have been hard enough. He turned to all Peter's friends and said, hey, get behind me, Satan. To Peter, the guy. You know, Peter was older than the other disciples. That must have been hard. John was just a punk kid. He was 20 years old. Peter was around 40. He's older than Jesus. Don't you know that in Jesus in Peter's flesh something rose up and said, Man, who are you? And then he said, Oh, I know who he is. <laughs> you know? Why did he rebuke him? You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. There's a constant battle in this exchange program. Are we going to have in mind the things that come natural to men? Self-preservation. To look good. Even in the world of Christianity, once you've received Christ, you have a whole new type of pride. You want people to see you as more righteous than you are. You know? We overestimate the amount of time we pray when we tell somebody by the same amount that we underestimate the time we watch TV. Oh, yeah, TV? I hardly never watch that. Prayer? Yes, I spend hours in prayer. When the truth is you hardly ever pray and you watch TV for hours because you want people to view you a certain way. Just like that lady in the BMW's whole life seemed to be set up around that image at the stop sign. We carry with us facades that we must exchange for the glory of God. But it only comes as you recognize it. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul. I'll tell you what a man can give in exchange for his soul. He can give himself. When you give your desires, when you bring the Lord your dreams and your visions as if they were ashes, you exchange them, you will get something beautiful. When every time you feel despair creep in your life, when your heart is broken, when you want to be angry and fight, when you want to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness because they hurt you, when you bring that to the Lord and you give that to Him in exchange, you get your soul. You get something beautiful. You get life and life abundantly. To participate in this program, we put aside the things of men. We count our lives outside of Christ as ashes. And in exchange, He gives us a beautiful life of freedom to do His will. 
The men cried out that they were under tyranny from England. King George is taxing us and we have no representation. We have no control over it. We believe that the Creator, that even the laws of nature and the God that instituted those laws has made it for all men to pursue liberty and life and happiness. Where did they get the idea? Because the Gospel gave it to them. The Gospel, this book, declares that all men can be free from sin. They can be free to do God's will. They just have to be willing to exchange what comes natural to them for a supernatural Gospel. In John 3, I'm not going to read these, I'll just tell you about them. In John 3, a man comes to Jesus. And he is a teacher of Israel. His name is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He is considered to be the intellectual and religious elite. And he says, oh, Jesus, I know you're a good teacher. I'm here at night and hope that doesn't bother you. He came at night because he was terrified somebody would see him there. And he began to talk to Jesus. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, nobody's going to see the kingdom of God without being born again. And Nicodemus began to rationalize immediately. What do you mean born again? Can a guy enter his mother's womb a second time? Oh, what a stupid question to ask, huh? How many of us would? I mean, would you have understood? Would you have understood that to be born again meant you exchanged your life for another? I wouldn't. And he goes on and Jesus speaks to him almost in riddles. He says, yeah, the kingdom's like the wind. You don't see where it comes or where it goes. And you've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. He said, the Son of Man will be lifted up. By the way, you're a teacher of Israel. Jesus says that almost condescendingly. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. I'm speaking to you about earthly things. What would happen to you if I spoke to you about heavenly things? In other words, Jesus was showing him, you're not even close. Why did Jesus feel a need to show him that? He didn't see himself as somebody who was sick. He didn't see himself as somebody who was in need of help. He saw himself as... I'm okay. You're okay. Let's just meet and talk. You know, let's rationalize as equals. But in the very next chapter, the heart of God is revealed. Turn to John 4. John 4 comes right after John 3. That's fairly obvious. But what is not so obvious is John 3 deals with somebody who believes that they're doing well, that everything is okay. While John 4 deals with somebody that is obviously in a situation that is not okay. That has no pretenses about it. Y'all know the story of the Samaritan woman who's at the well? She has this little conversation with Jesus about being the spring of living water. And, the, uh, and how, you know, how can you draw this water? You know, are you greater than Abraham? They have this whole conversation. But listen to what Jesus gets to. The point where he gets to in John 4.13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go back or go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Put yourself in her shoes. She's standing there. She doesn't know right away who she's talking to. They're having this whole conversation about how long Jesus' arms are, whether he can get water out of the well. 
And he's talking to her about never getting thirsty again. She says, great, I won't have to draw water, you know. She has no idea what they're talking about, just like Nicodemus didn't have any idea. But what is the difference between these two people? When Nicodemus was confronted with this, and you're a teacher of Israel, where he should have said, no, I shouldn't be. You should be. Help me. Help me. I don't have this right. Help me, Jesus. There's nothing like that in this conversation. Instead, he just listens. He contemplates. History says he was saved later, but it took a while to soften his heart. How does this woman respond when she's confronted with the truth of her life? Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. She acknowledges right away, you're something better than me, man. And she asks for help. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, woman, I'm sorry, was earlier. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Why does Jesus speak to the Pharisee in riddles, but to the woman that has had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband? He comes right out and says, I'm more than a prophet, baby. I'm the Messiah. This woman gets so excited, she runs and tells the whole town, and they get saved. Why? Because God hides things from the wise of this world, those that are proud, those that think they have no need of His help. But He reveals things to anybody who will admit that their life's not like it should be and they need His help. Why did Jesus hang out with whores, with sinners, with tax collectors? Because they knew that they were in sin and needed His help. The problem with America today, on this 4th of July, is America thinks they have no need of their sins being accounted for. They think it's all all right. It's all okay. We've been inoculated from Christianity. You've received enough weak, dead religion to keep it from the truth from piercing your heart and making you see the truth. I know because I have that veil over my eyes. I know because I see it everywhere. Eighty percent of this nation in Zogby polls say they're Christians. Fifty percent think it's okay to commit an abortion. I mean, is there not a glaring contradiction there? Oh, well, that's a political issue. Why would you bring that up? It's not. It's a moral issue, and you know it is. Your heart tells you it is. I'm I'm not marching in rallies, you know. I'd rather talk to people on an individual basis. This is not about abortion. It's about people living lives that are not consistent with what they say they believe. In John 3 and 4, you see the heart of God. He hides Himself from those that think they're all right. They'll never find Him. Thessalonians says he'll send you a lie if you don't love the truth. Kings 22 speaks of a lying spirit going out from God and telling people just what they wanted to hear since that's what they wanted to hear. He'll give you what you want. If you want truth, he'll give you truth. If you want a new life, he'll give you a new life. If you want to pretend yours is okay, he'll let you stay in it until you hang yourself because he's not going to beg anybody to follow him or get saved. 
this exchange is supposed to be of equivalence. He's already set it up so that you're exchanging something horrible for something beautiful. What more could He do for you? In John 8, and we're going to close with John 8. You can imagine there's a bunch more I could say on this subject, but I promised myself we would be under 60 minutes. Not the TV show. In John 8, you'll see a little footnote in most of your Bibles that say the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. Well, anybody wants to cut it out and throw it out of their Bible, you know, they can. You know how I know that this belongs in the Bible? It flows perfectly with the rest of the text. The Spirit in me says this is the Word of God. I don't need some man to tell me that it is. By the way, is older always more accurate? No, I can show you old copies of the Bible that have blatant mistakes in them that newer copies don't have because our translations have gotten better. You know, if you picked up a Bible in the 14th century and compared the Greek text to the Greek text that we have now and people's ability to interpret it, you would find that we've advanced. Older is not always more accurate. There's some debate as to whether the New Testament was written in Greek or Hebrew. We don't know. We, you know, The oldest copies we have are within 30 years of their life, which is excellent. But I don't know what Paul wrote it in. And it doesn't matter. The Spirit shows me that this belongs in the Scripture. You see if it agrees with you. On this exchange program, think about this. It says 8.1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Have you ever heard that expression, takes two to tango? If somebody's caught in the act of adultery, why are they only bringing one person? Was she committing adultery with herself? No, if she's caught in the act of adultery, there's got to be at least one more person there, right? So did they really care about fulfilling the law here? They say, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Well, I tell you, friends, the law also says you stone the man. But they don't mention that, do they? They didn't bring the man and the woman. They just brought the woman. said, teacher... The law says we have to stone her. What do you say? If they were really interested in fulfilling the law, why didn't they bring the guy? Why didn't they say the law commands us to stone the man and the woman? It's in Leviticus 20. You can read it. It's there. They knew it. They had it memorized. This was not an, uh, an oversight. They didn't make a mistake. This was willful. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Most of the time, we have developed for ourselves a moral code, a system that we've surrounded our lives with that fits our facade, that allows us to do the bad things that we want to do and not feel guilty about it. We're constantly working to sear our conscience. And when somebody comes along that is outside of our little group, that has not agreed to compromise with the enemy in the same way that we have, that pricks our life in a new area, we don't like it. And we look for a reason to cast them out, to accuse them, to be different. Oh, well, we don't like that guy the way he dresses. 
You know, those people are crazy in worship. You know, so we, we can't listen to them. Or on the charismatic side of the world, we look at somebody else and go, oh, they don't speak in tongues. We can't listen to what they say. As if somehow or another that's the litmus test for all Christians. How absurd. You know, we look for any reason we can to exclude somebody to protect what we have is the only way. Because deep down we're scared to death we're going to be challenged to do something new. We refuse to fellowship with people that believe something other than what we believe. As if somehow lightning is going to strike you if you even stand next to somebody who has a difference of opinion. Now, ironically enough, you'll eat in a restaurant with Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. But we can't stand next to somebody and sing if we don't all agree on every minor point of doctrine. It's ridiculous. And every one of us are guilty of it at times. We like to bash the church down the road. Well, these Pharisees are standing here saying, hey, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. They themselves are guilty for not bringing the man. And they were looking for a reason to trap Jesus. Why do they want to trap Him? Why do they want to disqualify His message? Because it was burning and convicting to them. A man came and he spoke to me. And he said, hey, I'm saved. I'll always be saved. How about you? Because I was clinging to a doctrine with all of my heart because I'd walked an aisle. Because everybody said I was saved. Because I said I was saved. But my heart convicted me that my life did not bear that out. I was not living or acting as one that was saved. And he challenged me and it hurt. So you know what I did? I went and told everybody around me that this guy was a heretic. That he was crazy. Did you see? He, he preached in blue jeans and a t-shirt. He, I found out he was not of my denomination. And you know what? I pretty successfully got 90% of the audience there to exclude him push him out to say what he's saying can't have any validity because it offends us. You need to be offended sometimes. You need to be challenged. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. Men are supposed to sharpen each other. That doesn't happen because we all just sit together in perfect harmony. It happens as we spur one another on to faith. That's what the Bible says. There are times when I love Matthew Pero with all of my heart, but the things he says to me are hard, and it needs to be, and vice versa, because we are encouraging one another not to stop and compromise on this walk to Jesus. We've exchanged the old life for a new one, and when we see that one of us is starting to yield in an area, we encourage each other to, to soldier on, to trudge on, to do whatever it takes to completely sell out for Jesus. But the human nature is to surround yourself with people that only say good things about you. We love you today, David. You're a wonderful person. You never do anything wrong. They are there. And so we form bless me clubs. These Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus because they don't like the things he's been saying about them. He looked at them a few chapters earlier. and He said, if your scripture speaks about me and you refuse to come to me and have life, you'll be condemned. He looks at them later and he says... God's not your father, the devil is. These are the most holy, righteous people outwardly you will ever meet. And he says the devil is their father. In John 7, right before this, he said, Hey, I am the spring of life. If you come to me, I'll give you life. He says it. And they've ignored him. Now the woman at the well didn't ignore him. She believed because she knew she was a sinner. Now here we are. It says, But Jesus bent down 
it started to write on the ground with his finger. I don't have time to teach it today because I'm out of time. But Jeremiah 17, verse 13 says what he wrote. It says that if Israel rejected the Messiah, he would write their names in the dust of the earth because they rejected the spring of living water. Jesus has just introduced himself four times in the Gospel of John as the spring of living water. The Pharisees come. They bring a woman. They set the woman before and say, She's guilty of sin. Let's stone her. What do you say? They're trying to trap him. He bends down and he writes their names in the dust because they have rejected him. And it says, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. One of the ways that Jesus achieved this exchange program for us is by accusing those who accused us. See, there is a power in the world that is called Satan. His name simply means enemy. He has been accusing the saints day and night before the Father, but Jesus has shown him to be guilty of sin. He has casted him from his position. The same way that Jesus showed these Pharisees to be guilty of sin and cast them from their position. They leave oldest to the youngest. They left because they realized they were guilty and they were trying to condemn this woman who knew she was a sinner. Jesus was standing there with all sinners. The difference was the one woman knew she was a sinner. All the men that wanted to throw rocks thought they were healthy and had no need of a doctor. One was willing to exchange her life for a new one. The others thought that their life was fine and they were in no need of an exchange. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman. Still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Colossians 1.22 says you stand free from accusation before the Father. If you'll exchange this life for a new one, when you stand before God, there is no one that condemns you. Jesus has not allowed it. He has proven your enemy guilty of sin and you can stand free before the Father in perfect freedom. James 2.13 says that His mercy has triumphed over judgment. We serve a God that would rather show you mercy, exchange your life for His life, than show you judgment. But when we stay in our pride and we refuse to change, He has no choice but to show us judgment because we brought Him nothing for the exchange. She answers, no one, sir. He says, woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Do you think she knew she was guilty? She's standing there half naked, having been caught in the act of adultery, embarrassed before all of Israel. And Jesus didn't condemn her. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, leave your life of sin. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? He gives his life of sin in exchange for a new life. That's what he gives. Today we're celebrating our nation's birth. And I love this nation. This nation has been a shining light for the world. More missionaries have gone out from this nation than any other. And Unlike so many who say, oh, you know, God's about to judge this nation, and that very well may happen, there's still an awful lot of righteous people here who have exchanged their lives for something better. I love this nation, but there's another nation. Second Peter, or First Peter 2, tells us, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation. We're a nation of people, the church, that has exchanged our pitiful lives for something beautiful, that has left our lives of sin never to return it and taken up something that's beautiful. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, those who mourn, those with ashes, and those in despair can participate in God's exchange program. Whether you need to be saved or you're saved, you must constantly be aware of the fact that when you feel, when you feel welling up in you a poor spirit, a broken heart, you're captive to sin, or you've become a prisoner to something that you don't want. When you feel mourning because your life's not going right, when you feel like your dreams are in ashes or despair has overwhelmed you, whether you're a Christian or not, you bring that to God and exchange it for life. Now, when you exchange something, it's a reciprocal act. You give and He gives. It means you don't have it anymore. Christians, don't hang on to things you're not supposed to. Don't cling to unforgiveness or you can't receive forgiveness from God. If you give God your unforgiveness in return, He gives you forgiveness. If you give God your judgmental attitude in return, He gives you mercy. If you give God your weakness, Hebrews 11 says He will give you His strength. There is an exchange program that we can all participate in. Whether it's the act of getting saved or the act of staying saved, we participate in it on a daily basis. You never reach a place where it's okay to rest on your laurels in Christianity. You don't have any to rest on because it's all mercy. Y'all stand up and we'll pray.